Where Dreams Come From is a podcast featuring successful people from different walks of life around the world. People who have pursued their dreams to arrive at a station in life. I'm your host, Sanjeev Chatterjee. Today, my guest is Isaac Trilaltensky, an exponent of critical psychology and community well-being. I first met Isaac as the incoming dean of the School of Education and Human Development at the University of Miami, where I too am employed. Over the years, I have observed Isaac's dedication to community wellness and cohesion and wondered where his dreams came from and how far they have brought him. Isaac Prilantensky, welcome to Where Dreams Come From. Thank you for having me. I'm always thinking about what I've heard you talk about publicly, and I'm always curious how you got to where you are today. So it's hard to think about where I am today without thinking about where I came from. I grew up in Argentina. I lost my parents when I was eight years old in a car accident. And that was a big moment, obviously, in my life. I was adopted by an aunt who was a widow. So she raised three of her own kids and myself and two siblings. So we were six kids no money, but a lot of love. Education was very important in our house. So my aunt always instilled the love of education. There were a lot of shaping moments in Argentina. There was a lot of anti-Semitism, a fascist dictatorship. So from a young age, you were hit with a very depressing reality of oppression and persecution. And you didn't have to be politically precautious to become involved in social affairs because it hit you in the face. Unfortunately, some of my friends were killed by the military just because of demonstrations. My sister was a political prisoner. She went to exile in Paraguay for seven years. So I went to Israel because the situation was very dangerous. And Israel provides always refuge for Jews who are escaping difficult circumstances. So I think growing up under difficult circumstances made me pursue two dreams. One is a dream for wellness for everybody. And the second one was a dream for fairness for everybody. And I knew that social determinants of health are usually left out of the psychologist room or the physician's room or the special education teacher or the psychiatrist or counselor or social worker. I knew that was a problem. We wanted to make people happier, better adjusted, without looking at what was happening in their surroundings. That was a big problem. So I became part of a an emerging movement called critical psychology. Just like there is critical race theory, at the time, in the 90s, we were working on critical psychology, which basically meant a critical examination of how psychology promotes a state of injustice by trying to change people without changing the conditions that lead to so many problems to begin with. 
my academic career explored these topics and eventually I wanted to assume position of leadership so that I could make a bigger change. So I decided to apply for a deanship because I, I said, put up or shut up. And I've been at the University of Miami for 14 years, 11 and a half of which I was dean of the School of Education and Human Development. We built programs to promote wellness and fairness. And eventually I became vice provost for institutional culture. And what I do these days is to promote the culture of belonging, where everyone feels valued and everyone has an opportunity to add value. Our conversation today is, of course, about looking at the value of dreaming and chasing a dream in life. I'd like to understand from you your perspective. The first rule of dreaming is having a supportive partner with whom you can dream. Making change is very difficult by yourself, especially when you're growing up in difficult circumstances. But when you are surrounded by a group of supportive friends, colleagues, family members who can dream with you, the dream is so much easier. As I listen to you, two layers, right? One is the role of adversity in dreaming and pursuing a dream. Is that necessary? The first few years after my parents died were excruciatingly painful. They were painful because I wasn't allowed to grieve. Keep in mind that was in 1969. Psychological literacy wasn't what it is today. In Argentina, my aunt, my uncles, who were all well-intentioned, they were totally clueless about how to deal with grieving. So I had to bottle it up. I think the pain was exacerbated. So with time, I thought, I'm going to convert this into a mission. And my mission is, I became a child psychologist. This is what I did first. I had a master's degree in clinical child psychology from Tel Aviv University. And I started working with kids and families, first in Israel, then in Canada. I thought, hey, I, I have a reservoir of experiences, a reservoir of knowledge, an experiential expertise that I can put to the service of other people. So the flip side of that would be a life of abundance of both material things and of psychological resources. Is that a spoiler? It's a risk factor. I think it's definitely a risk factor because it leads to a sense of entitlement. Entitlement is terrible for two reasons. It's terrible for the entitled person and it's terrible for the people who are the recipients of that entitled behavior. And I think we have a great deal of entitled behavior nowadays. Narcissistic behavior has gone up and up and up, especially in the last three decades. And recently in the Harvard Graduate School of Education, they did a survey with young people to ask them, what do you value most in life? And there were values like fairness and caring and meaning and achievement. And achievement and economic success rose to the top by far. I think we live in a culture of demattering. Instead of people feeling like they matter, a lot of people feel like they don't matter. And in order to matter, 
there are two possible pathways. One is you rise above the rest. You achieve. You have a position of prominence. You behave in entitled ways. You become domineering of other individuals. And obviously, that's the less desirable way to matter. It means you are compensating for something that you don't have, and the only way you can have it is by exerting dominance and control over other people. The other way is just to devote yourself to what I call a we culture, as opposed to a me culture. People who embrace a we culture, they do things very differently. People who embrace a we culture think as follows. I have the right and the responsibility to feel valued and add value to promote wellness and fairness. Narcissists think in terms of a me culture. They think in terms of rights, not responsibilities. I have the right to be happy, end of story. And they will do whatever it takes to elevate their sense of self-importance. We see many terrible social consequences of people feeling like they don't matter, people feeling invisible, people feeling like society really doesn't care about them. And when they think that way, they resort to violence, they resort to extremism, Extreme political views are often a result of feeling denigrated by society. You feel forgotten. So there is a sense of, I'm going to show you. I will do things that will bring fame and notoriety to me because all of you have forgotten about me. So lack of mattering is one of the most serious risks we face in society. Some people become depressed and despondent, some people become narcissistic and domineering. So one trend that I see on social media is the idea of self-care and taking all kinds of quotations from all over the world, from spiritual leaders, from political leaders, from writers, from poets, to say that self-care is the top value that we should have. And my question is, what is really the distinction between self-care and narcissism? The distinction is self-care and self-compassion in the absence of compassion for others and making a contribution to others leads to narcissism. So the self-care advocates, they are 100% right about 50% of the problem. The other 50% is how do I use my self-care, my self-compassion to contribute to the well-being of others. This risk is exacerbated by an ideology that says, if you really, really want it, everybody can be happy. That's a gross oversimplification. What many of the advocates of the happiness movement forget is that there are certain necessary preconditions for flourishing to take place. And that's my main problem with the happiness self-care movement. They convey a message that if you really, really want it, you can do it. This is a myth. It's a myth that is very useful to people who don't want to change society because it's so much easier to say, change your mind, meditate your way 
to happiness as opposed to fixing conditions of injustice. And psychology, in many ways, has been handmaiden to the status quo because psychologists often define problems in intrapsychic terms. This is why I, I left clinical psychology and I became a community psychologist because just from experience working with kids, families in poverty, families suffering discrimination, I became sensitized to the role of context. And I said, I can't just work with an individual brain or spirit in the absence of fixing the collective well-being. And people who have a lot of privilege, or nowadays is called white privilege, they are often blind to all the resources that they take for granted. Not everybody is experiencing the same advantages that the elite does. So far, my takeaway is that before talking about dreams, talk about where your dream will take you towards a narcissistic path or towards a we path. How do we make sure of that? The latter is true. It's hard to do that without education and real life experience. I think it's necessary to be confronted with diverse points of view before you can choose the path of the we culture as opposed to the me culture. And I think a lot of people in the me culture could benefit from feeling a little less defensive, maybe about their privilege, their advantages. There is so much evidence that the way we process information is dictated by what we want to see and hear. We pick and choose, we cherry pick information that aligns with our biases. And it's hard for people on the right and the left to open their minds to opposing arguments. We like our tribe and we don't want anybody to poke holes into our ideology and our philosophy. The only way that we can all make progress, I think it's through education. An education that means, are we willing to challenge our preconceived notions? I often admire not so much people who never changed their mind and got it right, quote-unquote, from the beginning. I admire more people who learn from experience and who are open to diverse points of view. The problem that we have is that we do not educate truly for diverse thinking. There have been quite a few studies to examine what makes for a productive team. And what makes for a productive team, for a more creative team, are two things, really. One is psychological safety. And psychological safety means, I know that in my team, I can make mistakes and they're not going to crucify me for it. I know that I can take risks. And if I fail the first time around, people will pick me up. Psychological safety means I don't have to second guess what I'm going to say because people are not going to take cheap shots at what I'm saying. So psychological safety is very important. And the second one is emotional intelligence. So emotional intelligence is about self-regulation, being attuned to my own biases, and being able to create a climate where everybody can feel safe and can also give room for diverse opinions. What are the worst things where there is one domineering person and where people feel afraid? 
let's extrapolate this idea of a team. And this study has been done in Google and in other laboratory and field experiments. Let's extrapolate. Take this to a classroom, to a university. Where do people thrive the most? Where there is psychological safety and where there are skills to enable people to really explore in depth not only a material, an intellectual, a scholarly product, but also how they relate. And I think in that regard, the universities have not done a good job because we tend to cultivate the brain without the rest of the body. We are not sufficiently aware of our biases. We do not learn how to really listen to diverse perspectives, how to take evidence, how to weigh evidence. We just feel threatened all the time. And when we feel threatened, we're not learning. We're just defending ourselves. We live in a progressively polarized environment, but the safety, as you've already outlined, is within like-minded people. What is the importance of risk and how to navigate that to be able to achieve that dream of making a truly diverse environment work. Thinking back about our own schooling, we were taught how to read, how to write, do math, but we weren't taught how to listen deeply to other views how to contest our own views, how to learn about the biases, about privilege. And until we learn the skills required for self-examination and societal examination, while regulating our own impulses for shutting down dialogue, that requires skill building. We do a terrible job at that. Just like we often do a terrible job at parenting. I find it amusing that in some places people require a license to fish, but not to raise a child. And I'm not trying to be big government and regulate who can have a kid or not, but I'm just trying to make a plug, put in a plug for better education, how to raise kids, how to educate, how to have proper debate. So skill building, I just don't believe that it's enough to read, for example, about the history of slavery in our country. You are more enlightened, you are more aware, but the translation from knowing about the history of slavery to how do I need to behave personally, institutionally, it's a long bridge. The bri that bridge needs to be created with carefully taught skills and competencies. We have to master the art of diversity. And we're light years away from achieving that. What are the conditions of fairness, of privilege and resources that will enable all of us to thrive? For young people, even, even for children that dare to dream of a life that is better for them in this life, what is your advice? Educate yourself to achieve a level of certainty that your dream will contribute to your own personal development and the development of other people at the same time. It's hard to know what to dream about in the absence of exposure. In order to dream, you have to feed your dreams. We feed our dreams with education of a better state of affairs for my family, for my village, for my city, for my country, for my parents, for myself. 
So we have to understand what are the opportunities out there. It's hard to do that in the absence of exposure. So my message is both to the children. Learn, study, educate yourself about what's possible. But my message is also for the teachers and the parents and the rabbis and the priests and everybody who works with kids and the youth leaders and the youth workers that we have to open up the realm of possibilities for them. This is why I go back to the importance of enriching our intellectual life through music, art, philosophy, life sciences, physical sciences, humanities. It's very hard to know what you are good at also if you don't know what's out there for you to experiment with. We know this from the science of expertise, science of mastery. How do you become a great chess player? How do you become a great athlete, a violinist? You have to set ambitious goals for yourself. You have to work with a coach and you have to invest thousands of hours. You have to imagine what would be like to win a race, to win a chess match, to play a great violin concerto. This is part of what nowadays is called prospection. There is the science of prospection. And it turns out that people spend inordinate amount of time prospecting, thinking, projecting themselves into the future. It sustains us. We spend a tremendous amount of our wake time thinking about what do I want to do next? What's my next big move? What is that great job I want to achieve? Or I want to move to another country. And I think we need to nurture those visions. Always keeping in mind the balance between the me and the we. What's the journey been like to dream and do you think you've achieved your dreams in this life? There are certain things I feel good about. I feel good about my family. Building a relationship based on love and, and loyalty and integrity and mutual reciprocal care and love with my wife and my son. I feel that I have relationships that we built in my family that I'm really proud of. Because that's one of the ultimate tests of who you are. How are you with the people close to you? I wanted to be part of a movement to sensitize the social sciences and psychology to the role of fairness in wellness, in public health, in psychology, mental health. And I feel pretty good to have made a contribution in, in that domain. I'm still trying to figure out how to improve institutions, which is very challenging. But I'm sticking with it. I've been an administrator, an academic leader for the last 14 years, and I'm still working on that dream of creating a more perfect institution, an exemplary institution. So on balance, I feel satisfied, but there is a lot of work yet to be done. Isaac Prolotensky, thank you very much. It's thank been you a pleasure. So much, it was a pleasure.